Wilson past the 30, past the 40. Wilson might take it all the way. He hurdles his own man and takes it home. Touchdown, Houston. Coming at you from the We Desert Studio in Houston, Texas. You're listening to the Weekly Brew with Austin Statton, Kevin Cook, and Jeremy Paxton. It's time to sit back, relax, and be informed. Welcome to episode 59 of the Weekly Brew Podcast. My name is Austin Staten, and I'm coming at you live from the We Dessert Studio in Rio de Janeiro. I am actually here in South America for the 2016 Rio Paralympic Games, and I'm about 5,000 miles away right now from both Kevin and Jeremy Paxton back at the We Dessert Studio in H-Town, and I'm going to toss it to them in just a few moments, but uh, we had an amazing week of college football to kick things off. Obviously a big win by U of H and Tom Herman over the Oklahoma Sooners, and of course, both Jeremy and Mai's alma mater, Baylor University, uh, had a nice win against a FCS school, Northwestern Louisiana State. Obviously, their season won't truly kick off until September 25th against the Oklahoma State Cowboys, but uh, quite a week of college football, big upsets all across the board, and uh, we'll dive more into the NCAA football and the college football landscape here in the next few weeks, but uh, I just wanted to join this week briefly just to uh, say that we have an amazing show on deck. Before I left, uh, both myself and Kevin spoke with Aaron Wilson of the Houston Chronicle uh, to kind of dive into uh, the upcoming NFL season, which kicks off this Thursday. Also, we had Sean Pendergast, a repeat guest from Sports Radio 610, who uh, spoke specifically about the Texans, what we can expect from their season, and also a little bit of controversy that is surrounding 610 Sports and head coach Tom Herman from the Houston Cougs. So stay tuned for that. But uh, I'm going to go and toss it back to North America. And uh, Kevin, take it over from here. What you just heard was the voice of our fearless leader, Austin Staten from Rio, which I'm told is in Brazil. Uh, some Paralympics action going on there. We miss you, buddy. Hope you're having a good time. Hope you're safe and sound. Uh, but I am Kevin Cook. I'm a sports writer for the Houston Chronicle Community Division covering high school sports, and I'm here with Jeremy Paxton. We're going to talk a little bit about sports, but first, uh, being a Houston podcast, we always like to highlight the things that are going on within the city of Houston, and I've stumbled upon another podcast, a fellow podcast, the Dead Dialect Podcast. And i got to say, I am turning into a huge fan. Have you heard of this podcast, Jeremy? I have not, actually. It is a really fantastic podcast. Podcast, uh, by two guys, Brandon and Julian, Brandon Clements and Julian Laura, I think is his name. And they interview Houstonians, uh, particularly musicians. The one I heard most recently had musician Soby Lash, uh, an urban funk uh, kind of a, a feel to it, and uh, and just talk to them about their art, about their craft, about uh, Houston in general. And it's a really terrific podcast. They've been going for a while now. They had the Fall of Troy. Uh, they did some special live video stuff with them. Really great podcast. Totally recommend you guys listen to that. Shout out to you guys for doing a great job uh, in the city of Houston podcasting. But that's uh, that's my recommendation this week. Of course, we had some last week as well. But uh, okay, so exciting weekend. Obviously, I was at NRG for the Advocare Texas kickoff. Number three OU facing off against uh, number 15 or 13 U of H, depending on which poll you look at and did it go the way you thought it was going to go Jeremy well as our listeners will know last week on this podcast I predicted that Houston would win by two touchdowns I was off by a mere four points but I'll take credit because it was two scores um, I, I really wasn't surprised at the result I was a little surprised about how they got there I thought Houston would have a more potent offensive uh, drive throughout the entire game OU did manage to slow them down a little bit 
But I mean, if, if I'm looking at the, the way that this game played out, I wouldn't have had it go any other way, especially with that kick six there. Um, I, there aren't a whole lot of teams that get kick six, and I couldn't have been happier to see it happen against OU. I don't know if I've ever seen that. I was aware that it could occur. I know that it did famously happen against an Alabama uh, Auburn or in an Alabama Auburn contest. I did not actually witness that myself. So I was to see it in person. And the kind of swing it was where you expect three points there, you end up giving up seven, a 10 point swing in a game that made it 26 17, uh, really kind of sealed their fate, I feel like. That's when, that's when I think everybody sort of realized that Houston was in control of this matchup. Houston was the better team, not the more talented team. And as you alluded to earlier, um, you could see clearly the disparity in uh, you know in the recruits, the size of the players, the physicality of the players. Um, you know, just in terms of how many stars these guys had before they came into the program. But you also see, I think, in this game that that doesn't really necessarily matter. Raw talent is a great thing to have, and it's one tool of many. But Tom Herman has a talent for turning these teams into really productive, effective machines. And I think there was no question toward the end of uh, of uh, Saturday's match that U of H was the better team. And as Jim Rome said on. Twitter, uh, the better program. I absolutely agree with that. I mean, if you look, I, I, and I will, I'm going to harp on the the Peach Bowl. Uh, I mean, U of H came out, be a very good Florida State team, and carry that momentum into a first game against a, a top five team in OU. OU, classically, every season underestimates its opponents, especially ones that it thinks is below it. And so, um, classic, classically, you know, yesterday, Bob Stoops and his program just could not, uh, they could not live up to the, the preseason hype. And I think that uh, Tom Herman was able to sort of use that to his advantage in planning how his offense was going to approach uh, OU yesterday. I, I think what, um, yeah, I mean, like, like you said, uh, OU or U of H was clearly the better team yesterday, even though there was a size disparity. Um, if you looked at the the offensive and defensive lines on both teams, like you could definitely tell there was a difference. But that kick six, I mean, it, it was really, U of H took over the uh, momentum game and then just sort of broke their morale as the game went on. And you could see that in the way that OU is playing. Uh, the U of H defense was especially impressive. Uh, they just completely shut down uh, Baker Mayfield, and he could not complete uh, passes, particularly in the third quarter, to save his life. So it was really impressive to see U of H in the job that they did. And I really think uh, this makes a statement for their candidacy in the Big 12 or another power conference. Yeah, interesting about Baker Mayfield. He struggled later on. I guess they were trying to play catch-up. He was 12 for 12, or sorry, 11 of 11. He missed his uh, 12th pass, would have been a touchdown in the end zone. But he was 11 of 11 to start the game. Had something like a 200.1 quarterback rating uh, in the early portions of the game, and they were still beating them pretty soundly. So it just goes to show what kind of a defense this team feels. And I was impressed with uh, true freshman uh, Ed Oliver who had a heck of a game, and I think everyone expected him to, but uh, to see a true freshman step up and play like that with that kind of size, tenacity, and fierceness, um, I think he had five tackles. He was involved on two sacks. Uh, I mean, just a really, really physical presence for the Cougars that's going to contribute right away. Uh, everybody that had hopes for Ed Oliver, I think they were validated, and I think that it's going to be exciting to watch this kid play this season for this Houston Cougars team, a team he's fired up to play for, and that's that's becoming a trend here. Honestly, I know I'm biased. I went to the University of Houston. I'm an alum. 
Uh, I covered the sports. That's where I first started doing sports writing. But I can't imagine if I were a Houston kid uh, why I would want to go anywhere else. I mean, you're talking about one of the most competitive programs in the country, perhaps on the cusp of becoming one of these uh, Power Five, uh, you know, conference uh, or joining a Power Five conference. Uh, they're certainly making their bid to the Big Twelve, and they, I think they strengthened it with this win. But uh, to me, what an exciting time to be an athlete in Houston and have the opportunity to stay nearby and play for a really dominant program and a really uh, ascendant coach in Tom Herman. Absolutely. Well, and, uh, you know, there was a lot of uh, action on Twitter yesterday after the game, you know, talk about U of H in the Big 12 and how big of a deal that would be. U of H has done a really good job here over the past few years of recruiting in Houston and being able to nab recruits from the Houston area and keep them. I think there was some it was a, a, a pretty good ratio out of like something like 45 recruits. More than half came from the Houston area. I think that other Big 12 programs are kind of threatened by that, honestly, but uh, that certainly doesn't mean that U of H doesn't have a chance to get into the conference. They've certainly demonstrated that, at least in regards to football, that they are absolutely competent and capable of competing in a Power 5 conference. Kevin, I'm a little curious, as a U of H alum, what do you think that this win, along with the Peach Bowl win, does for the program heading into the rest of the season? Well, there's there's two ways to look at it. I think what it does for the fan base is it really fires them up. And I think that, you know, my mom was texting me all throughout the game. She has gotten into sports recently, and it's amusing how it's sort of consumed her, and she's actually really legitimately excited where she used to roll her eyes, and she used to uh, you know, try to beg out of going to football games and stuff. She's actually into it now, but she was so negative throughout the game. She said they're going to lose. Everybody in Houston's going to forget about them. They're going to be nobodies again. And then as soon as the uh, as the game clock expired and they were the winners, my mom texted me and said, "Oh, great, Herman's gone." So, <laughs> you know, it's good for this fan base who's had a lot of negative experiences, a lot of negative history, to have these sort of momentous wins. Um, I think for the program itself, if you listen to the players and the way they're talking, it doesn't do anything necessarily for their confidence. They fully expected to win that game yesterday. Uh, we're recording this on Sunday. That game Saturday, they fully expected to come out and dominate it, and they did. So I don't know that they need any validation. I think Tom Herman has them believing in themselves, has them loving one another and playing for one another, and a win like that is just confirmation of the work that they're already doing. I'm not sure how a loss would have affected them, but I do think that they have the temperament to remain even-keeled and remain focused despite uh, I mean, one of the biggest wins in program history. Absolutely. And let's look forward here. I mean, yesterday... Uh, you had number of commentators talking about Houston as a playoff contender last week when you made that prediction. I thought you were crazy, uh, but it is if uh, U of H goes on to win the rest of their season, which um, the game against Louisville is going to be a challenge for them. But I mean, my gosh, they've proven that they're capable of knocking off uh, a top five team. So I, you know, if they win the rest of their season, I think that they're a shoe in for the playoff. Yeah, and it always comes down to health. Uh, you know, obviously Greg Ward is a huge component of what they do over there, and he was twenty three of. 40, uh, tossing the ball for 321 yards and two touchdowns, uh, was pretty much stymied on the ground. Uh, 18 rushes uh, for one yard. You know, there's some sacks thrown in there that affect that yardage as well, but he was mostly doing it through the air. And I think he's matured uh, to be the sort of quarterback that Tom Herman is really looking for. They can really, uh, you know, decision-making, on point, can move the ball when he needs to, whether uh, uh, you know on the ground or in the air, uh, and is really locked in with that offense and using those pieces. Um, Linnell Bonner had an amazing catch. Steven Dunbar had several. I mean, it was uh, just a really great day for the passing offense, which is one thing that U of H is known for. But um, but it does come down to health. In that game they lost last season, Greg Ward was injured and Postma was injured. So you talk about your two quarterbacks, you lose both of them. There's not a lot of teams that a football team is going to win against. They lose both of their quarterbacks. So that's always, always a 
factor, always a concern. But uh, but if this team stays healthy, I mean, I think the sky is absolutely the limit. And, uh, and I'm looking forward to watching them this season. Absolutely. And uh, I, I think as long as, um, I mean, you're absolutely right. If U of H stays healthy, um, I, I, I definitely see in Greg Ward a more mature quarterback this season. I watched him last season and he wasn't especially accurate, but yesterday he was able to uh, compensate for that sort of uh, natural ability by running the ball when he needed to. And then in that moment, stepping up and making that those, you know, making the right kind of accurate passes to very capable receivers. So I think as long as U of H stays healthy, I think that the that the playoff outlook for them looks very bright. One thing we do here at the Weekly Brew Podcast is we put out great shows. Week in, week out, we put out great shows. That's why we're the voice of Houston, and we are the voice of Houston. Ask anyone, um, ask especially us, because we are the ones that know we're the voice of Houston. But this week we have Aaron Wilson, uh, Houston Texans uh, beat writer for the Houston Chronicle. We love the Chronicle guys. They do a great job. He kind of runs through the NFL at large, uh, talking a bit about some of the major stories of this week, Colin Kaepernick, Teddy Bridgewater, things of that nature. We talk a little bit about the Texans defense. And then we have Sean Pendergast, an old friend uh, by, by radio show standard. I don't know him intimately or personally, but I think he's a terrific guest, and he joins us this week. And we actually scheduled him before um, this conflict with the U of H folks kind of came to a head with Tom Herman not being on uh, 610 anymore doing his weekly show. Uh, It's an interesting story. I will say everybody knows my biases. I'm a U of H alum. I'm very pro U of H. Uh, I think a lot of people have been unreasonable to 610. I heard Josh Beard and Matt Hammond talking after the the game against OU, and they were very positive. Uh, It was very uplifting stuff about U of H, so I think that you know give the guy a fair shake i would say that hear him out listen to what he has to say i don't think that he disrespects tom herman uh if that's something you're afraid of i don't think that he uh, has antipathy towards tom herman i don't think that he's unfair towards tom herman so it's an interesting interview and we do get into some of that so if you're curious to hear some of the details behind that falling out he gets into that uh at length and i found it to be very entertaining and uh and i will say that for my part i like sean a lot as much as you can like somebody you know from talking to him on a radio show or a fake radio show as this is so uh you know don't scream at me for having him on the show so as kevin mentioned in just a few moments we're going to have aaron wilson and sean pendergast on the podcast but before we dive into any of that i want to make sure that everyone follows us on our social media platform just go and search weekly brewcast on facebook twitter instagram and youtube and also if you're in the mood for great desserts stop by we desserts all Listeners of the Weekly Brew Podcast get 10% off. Just tell Penny and Jen that the guys at the Weekly Brew Podcast sent you by. But we've got a fun episode on deck here in just a few seconds. Aaron Wilson from the Chronicle is going to be joining us to discuss NFL football, and Sean Pendergast of Sports Radio 610 will join us in about 10 minutes. But we've got a packed show on deck, so it's time to sit back, relax. And be informed. You're listening to the Weekly Brew. Joining us now on the Weekly Brew podcast is Aaron Wilson, the uh, Texans beat reporter for the Houston Chronicle, previously covered the Ravens for the Baltimore Sun, and covers the NFL for the National Football Post. Does it all in the world of the NFL. Aaron, welcome to the show. We're glad to have you. How are you doing today? Great. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, man. So uh, one big story in the NFL we want to jump right to, everybody's talking about, is Tony Romo injured again. And some of the scuttlebutt around the league has been, this guy should retire for his own health. I've seen letters pleading for him to do the right thing for himself and his family. I mean, what do you make of all that? Is it time for Tony Romo to hang it up? No, I don't think he should. I I think that he should keep playing. I think that this injury was sort of an awkward injury. I don't feel like it's just like he's made a class, he's brittle. I think he's a pretty tough guy. He's a little older, and he probably does get hurt a little more easily than he used to, but this is an injury he can come back from. This isn't that bad of an injury. It's an injury that he should be able to play with in a couple of months, and yeah, my thing on O is they got to protect him better, and he's got to 
get down. He's got to protect himself. But I think he can make a few adjustments and still play a few more years. I wouldn't shut it down if I were him. So kind of looking at the Cowboys, uh, Dak Prescott is going to be kind of thrown into the fire. He was a uh, early round draft pick by the Dallas Cowboys this year. Probably was expecting to learn for uh, behind Tony Romo for about a year or two. Uh, what can Cowboys fans expect from him this season? Is it going to be much like the preseason, or do you expect some uh, bumps along the way? I think he'll have a few issues because they're going to figure him out once they get some game tape on him. But what I like about him is his ability to keep his eyes focused down the field, scroll on the move, I think that he's good at looting pass, pass rushes, and I think he's someone that, you know, can get into a rhythm. He has a pretty strong arm. He's not the biggest guy in the world, but he's durable. And I could see him having some success. I, I would be a little bit surprised if he's not at least solid as a rookie. Let's talk about Colin Kaepernick. He's uh, he's raised a lot of eyebrows, I guess, with his decision to sit down during the national anthem, and uh, certainly a lot of ink has been spilled. A lot of tweets have been sent out about this action. Uh, I like seeing activism in, in my sports figures, uh, but a lot of people apparently don't. I mean, just given being the guy at the uh, you know with a lot of Twitter followers, obviously, and, a, and a, a link to these people, what's been your sense of how people have responded to that, and uh, and what do you think of it? Response has been mostly negative. It has raised some awareness and sparked some conversations. Where I find it interesting is that some people won't even entertain you know, some ideas and say, okay, well, what's he talking about? And they, they just immediately react negatively to him not standing for the anthem. I find it a little misplaced. I think that, yes, that's his only real time where he can make a protest, but he could do interviews. He could, you know, have a sit in. He can do many things. He doesn't necessarily have to do that at work, but I think that, it's a small gesture. What's he risking? Not a lot. You know, he's going to have obviously the backlash and endorsements. And, uh, you know, I could see it being a little tough for him to get a job, possibly, if some team doesn't want the distraction. But, you know, this is someone, if you look at his Twitter timeline, uh, has been a supporter of Black Lives Matter. Uh, he's been more active with that this year, retweeting Sean King, who's an outspoken writer on race in New York Daily News, quite a bit. And, Yes, I don't think this happened overnight. It's how he felt for a while, and this is his choice of how to express himself. I support his right to do it. I don't agree with the method, but I have no problem with him having any issue. That's what this country is founded on. If he doesn't like something, I find the people that tell him, like, hey, if you don't like it, leave, you know, that's ridiculous. I think that's a really kind of get-off-my-lawn type (laughs) promotion attitude. Yeah, I take issue with that. But I don't spend a bunch of time thinking about Colin. I don't think he's a very good quarterback anymore. And this is the most relevant thing from him in years since he played in the Super Bowl. (laughs) What is it about dual-threat quarterbacks like Colin Kaepernick and RG3 who kind of burst onto the scene, had, you know, productive early years, but then whether it was injuries or the NFL catching on, is there a place for Kaepernick or RG3 in the league? Sure, but it doesn't always work as a starter. It's hard to really you know, be very sustainable. And I think that's what you're seeing. You're seeing a shelf life for it. I think that's one of the issues. We look up to the NFC North and see that last Tuesday, Teddy Bridgewater uh, had that horrific injury, a non-contact injury. Uh, So that kind of changes the landscape for that uh, division. Uh, How do you see the Vikings replacing him? And and do you see that as a significant impediment for their uh, playoff chances this year? I think it'll be a problem. I think they could still get a wild card. I just think they're not going to go very far. It's not like he's a great quarterback. I mean, he, you know, he's a solid quarterback. He's not nothing special. 
terms of production or accuracy. But, yeah, I think that Sean Hill, they'll be able to do some things with him as a game manager. I don't think there's anyone they're going to trade for short of Mark Sanchez. It's going to really impact this much at all. And I don't think Sanchez, obviously, is very good. Or he would have been now Trevor Simeon. But, yeah, my take on him is just that, that he's you – know, it's a great loss, obviously, emotionally. He's a good leader. And he's just good enough as a quarterback for – you know, this to basically for this to work. And now yeah, it's, it's going to be tough. And I think it's going to be a rough road for them as far as really taking advantage of Laquan Tribal and Stephon Diggs and their talent. So speaking of special quarterbacks, do the Texans have one? Brock Osweiler has looked pretty impressive in some preseason action here, but it is the preseason. What do you anticipate for him in the long run this season? I think that he'll be pretty productive. I think he has a chance to be a 4,000-yard guy. I think that that would be a big accomplishment for the Texans. I also think that he's someone that you could see him being able to maybe throw about 25 touchdowns. Uh, if he's careful to football, maybe no more than 15 to you know, 12 to 15 picks. Now kind of switching to the other side of the ball for the Texans, uh, the big storyline of the offseason was J.J. Watt and his injuries. I mean, he's a $100 million man, uh, claims that he's going to be back early on in the season. How important is J.J. Watt in terms of making that defense click if he's out for a longer period of time or uh, suffers some injuries uh, at some point this year? Are the Texans going to be able to get by on defense? They would get by without him. They wouldn't be a very good defense. They'd be a solid to average defense. They've got a lot of their pieces, but they don't have a lot of other talent on the defensive line other than Christian Cutting as far as guys that get to the quarterback. So you'd have to have Jadavian Clowney playing with his hand down. We saw a little bit of that in the third preseason game. My expectation is that J.J.'s back is pretty structurally sound, and he'll get back to being J.J. Uh, I think that it'll take a little time for him to play his way into shape, but this is someone who's not really normal as far as his body, his healing, and all those things. He'll surprise people, I think, with how good he is in September. You know, we follow your work, of course, and we enjoy it always. It's at HoustonChronicle.com or Cron.com, depending on where they decide to put it, but we certainly recommend the listeners go there. But you wrote about the cornerbacks, and, and uh, I gather from reading your article, you think that's a pretty deep position here and that the Texans are pretty set. Would that uh, would that be accurate to say? Yeah, that's accurate. I mean, when you look at the fact that they have a non-starter as a potential to be their best corner in Kevin Johnson, it's a pretty strong group. A.J. Boyer just watching him practice in the preseason games and the progression from him. It's really impressive. They've developed him as an undrafted guy. He's much more confident. He's a big corner. And there's some teams he would start for. And then, you know, I'm not going to go and say, like, go Charles James or Robert Nelson or World Beaters, but they're your, you're talking about the fifth, sixth guys. So, yeah, I look at Jonathan Joseph. He's still playing good football. And to me, Kareem Jackson of the top three is probably the third best. But yeah, he's okay. He can tackle covers a little bit it's picked on occasionally but yeah I think he's he's solid it's not a bad group at all okay we've got Aaron Wilson on from the Houston Chronicle uh, covers the Texans and the NFL you can follow him on Twitter at Aaron Wilson underscore NFL and Aaron as the NFL kicks off uh, this Thursday night and uh, Texans kicking off on Sunday afternoon uh, what kind of coverage are you going to have for Cron.com leading up to the opening week we're going to be working on a lot of stories including obviously the return of J.J. Watt the matchup with the Bears. I think we'll be doing a feature on DeAndre Hopkins. Uh, we'll try to get done in time for uh, the first game. And then uh, we'll have a lot of daily coverage on the blogs, a lot of tweets, and, of course, some features and news as it comes up. I 
we'll have updates on Blaine Brown and J.J. Watt and all the guys coming back from injuries. And, yeah, I think we'll, we'll have uh, thorough coverage, I hope. Well, Aaron, we definitely appreciate you joining us on the Weekly Brew Podcast this week. And uh, to our listeners out there, if you don't follow Aaron on social media, go ahead and check him out. Aaron Wilson underscore NFL provides great content. Aaron, it's been great. Thanks. Great talking to you guys. You're listening to the Weekly Brew. The Houston Texans open up the uh, regular season this week against the Chicago Bears. And joining us now on the Weekly Brew podcast to discuss the Texans, NFL football, Houston, U of H athletics, everything is Sean Pendergast of Sports Radio 610. And Sean, uh, the Texans have looked very good during preseason football. But after four games, it's finally down to the regular season. And uh, as mentioned earlier, the Texans open up against the Bears at noon on at Reliance Stadium on Sunday, September 11th. How ready are you to finally talk about regular season football rather than just the preseason? <laughs> always ready. I appreciate you guys having me on. Yeah, always ready to talk about the uh, the regular season, especially when we head into this like this, this dark phase of two weeks where all we have is the one Thursday night game for for week four, where a bunch of guys are just sort of trying to make the practice squad and stuff. So. Um, ready for it to get here, and and ready for the first month of the season, man. The 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 Bears is you know the Bears game's the opener, but it's really I was kind of doing my game by game preview last night for the um, for the Houston Press that's going to drop next week. So I was really kind of digging into every game, and the Bears game is the Bears game will be great because it's the unveiling of all these weapons and the new offense, which has looked pretty good in the preseason, very promising. But following that, man, that's a really important five-day stretch of football for this team in weeks two and three, uh, Kansas City and New England. So I'm I'm pumped for it to be here. So, Sean, you mentioned your work for the Houston Press, and you're one of those unique dual-threat guys. We love you on the radio at 610, and we also love reading your work in the Houston Press. And one of the things you wrote about in the last couple of weeks I thought was interesting was the, the shift that's happened in this narrative uh, with, with the Broncos and Brock Osweiler and Elway and kind of uh, the, the shift that's occurred and him going out the door and them saying they let him walk and so forth. And so I'm curious, you could just maybe give us some background. What, what was the initial feeling about Osweiler in Denver? Because now I think a lot of people are touting that, oh, Denver let him walk, he's not that good. And I think it's probably not accurate right yeah I, I don't think it is I mean I, I look you you look at you look at the just the, the purely the reporting aspects of the Osweiler story because there's really with any story there's two things there's the there are the facts that were reported and then there's there's kind of the the narrative that gets out there that gets distorted by the lunatic fringe of uh, of uh, a team it can be a pro team a college team we see it a lot in college with that it's usually a very small percentage of the fan base, but it's a very vocal percentage of the fan base that, with social media nowadays, has a voice that's amplified a hundred times. Um, so, the, you know, just purely the reporting aspects by people who are very well respected in in the industry, um, both you know local reporters here like John McClain, and and then people who reported on the story from the the NFL, the national side of things, is that. The, the the whole thing with the Denver Broncos, you know, quote unquote, letting Brock Osweiler walk just wasn't true. The Denver Broncos wanted Brock Osweiler back pretty badly. John Elway said a lot of really glowing things about Brock Osweiler uh, after the season was over, um, about how they wouldn't have won the Super Bowl without him. You know, I don't think you invest four years in a second round pick like that just to, you know, just to let him walk. Um, they offered him reportedly sixteen million dollars a year. Um, you know, that got kind of construed as, well, Elway had his value on him, and then that he wasn't going to go any higher than that, when the truth from, you know, people who I respect is that Brock came to the Tech, you know, Brock was obviously had the Texans and the Broncos on the hook, and when the Texans came to $18 million, they basically said, 
this is the last offer. You know, they, it was one of those figurative, you can't leave the room kind of things. Here's our last offer. And then, obviously, the money played into it. But I think there were a lot of other things that if you hear what Brock has directly said and also read into some of the things that he's saying, um, I think the, the amount of control that he gets in a Bill O'Brien offense versus Gary Kubiak, I do think the way the Broncos kind of played that whole thing with letting Peyton Manning take his time in announcing his retirement and kind of just assuming that Brock would be there for them, I don't think rubbed him – you know, I think that rubbed him the wrong way. I think he's kind of – subtly acknowledged that the benching in at the end of the season against San Diego rubbed him the wrong way when he answered that question in training camp with um with hey who wouldn't want to be in the in there who's you know what competitor wouldn't want to be in there so so I think just from a reporting standpoint we know that that's not the case that the Broncos let him walk away as far as the narrative being out there I think that's something you see a lot with with college teams with professional teams with especially ones that have very, very diehard fan bases, is that, that that small percentage of the fan base, but very vocal percentage of the fan base, it feels like their team and their, in this case, their executive team, you know, John Elway is obviously an icon in Denver, that he can do no wrong, that it had to be John Elway consciously making a decision to do this as opposed to Brock Osweiler having control of the situation and choosing to, to kind of carve out a different path. And they're starting Trevor Simeon in week one. There's no way that you can tell me that this was all part of the master plan. You know, let Brock Osweiler walk to have Trevor Simeon in, his, in there as the quarterback, or else Trevor Simeon would have been ahead of him on the depth chart last year. So um, I think that that whole thing is just so silly to me, and it's a huge reason why I want Brock Osweiler to kind of, you know, just I, – I want him to have a big year in part just to kind of shut some of those people up. Well, certainly what we've seen in the preseason has been encouraging against the uh, Cardinals, 11-13 of 13 for 146 yards, one touchdown, no interceptions. I mean, uh, it is the preseason, so granted, take it with a grain of salt. But just based on everything we have seen of Osweiler and based on the things he's said and he's done, uh, what do you anticipate for him this season? Yeah, I, I've been encouraged. I, look, if you were out there at the first few practices, it wasn't looking very good at first. Um, you know, there was a lot, of, there, a lot of the things that he was criticized for when the Texans signed him um, kind of appeared to be the case the first few practices in terms of just his holding on to the football, a little bit of indecision. Um, you know, some of the accuracy issues were kind of manifesting themselves. But he, he steadily got better and better as the practices went on. And it's the preseason, so, you know, the, the, he's going to be seeing different things in the regular season than he saw in the preseason, and especially if the Texans are still dealing with some of these injuries on the offensive line. Um, the you know the first few teams that they play are certainly especially Belichick in week three is going to have um, they'll have something for Brock Osweiler I'm sure um, but I've I've been real encouraged I've said all along guys that if if Brock Osweiler has a season that is basically just sort of an amalgam of any of Matt you know kind of you take Matt Schaub's four best seasons from 2009 to 2012. If he has sort of a, you know, kind of an amalgam of those four seasons, like an average of those four seasons, you know, like, and Matt Schaub averaged like almost 4,000 yards over those, over those four seasons. I don't expect that out of Brock. But if he has seasons similar to that, where he's, you know, 25, 26 touchdowns, maybe about 12 interceptions, 3,500 yards thereabout, uh, thereabouts, 
I think it means the Texans probably wound up having a pretty good year. So I, I think he's I think he's definitely capable of that. I think more importantly, they've given him the weapons to go do that, and those weapons appear to be building chemistry with him very very quickly. Now, Sean, around the league, it seems that the quarterback position has been hit pretty hard this preseason with injuries I and mean, we had Tony Romo go down uh, he's going to miss a significant portion of the season uh, then last Tuesday uh, Teddy Bridgewater had that uh, non-contact injury at practice and you know he's out for the year when I look at the Texans, I see Osweiler obviously having a, a solid preseason, but Savage is having a phenomenal preseason as well. How important is it for the Texans to have, I guess, two quarterbacks that you would almost feel comfortable uh, starting a game if, if, if you one were to go down via injury? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's important for every team. I mean, just so you bring up the Vikings as an example, I, I got to imagine the feeling on sports radio in, De- in uh, Denver, in uh, Minnesota yesterday, and certainly the feeling around the team was probably like, well, damn, our season, you know, I don't think players would openly admit it, but there had to be a, a sinking feeling that, well, our, our season's over. Because that's a team that I think had Super Bowl aspirations. You know, if, that's, that's a team with the defense and the running game. If Teddy Bridgewater just plays, you know, slightly above average, they've got a chance to make some noise. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think it's important for any team. I, I do feel like the first two years of Bill O'Brien here have shown that, He's pretty good in these triage situations, you know, where look, he's a coach who's been down to his third and fourth quarterback at the end of the season, two straight seasons, and he's managed to win nine games. You know, some of it is just, you know, you know look, some of it is a function of when you get put into those situations where you're down to your third or fourth quarterback. Um, you know, hopefully you're playing in beneficial situations like playing teams at home or, or, or playing teams that aren't as good, playing Tennessee and Jacksonville and teams like that. Um, so you, you need to be, you know, it needs to be a little fortuitous from that standpoint. But overall, I feel, I feel good about O'Brien's ability to kind of, if something were to happen with Osweiler, to, to kind of um, adapt. I mean, I do think, I, I've gone back and forth on this one. Like, you know, Savage, I think, is the backup. It'll be interesting to see what happens with Brandon Whedon. That'll be one of my things to watch, not just on Thursday, but also, you know, fr- obviously Friday when they cut the roster down is – you know, is O'Brien so confident in his ability to kind of coach a quarterback up to go win a football game if he if he's down two quarterbacks that he feels like he can just go pick up somebody and get him, you know, a shortened playbook like he did with Whedon or Yates or Keenum the year before, or does he say, you know what, we got too much at stake? I, Whedon is finally now up to speed. I want three guys that are up to speed here. I want three quarterbacks. That'll be an interesting thing to watch play out. But I, that's of all the things with O'Brien when it comes to coaching, that's the thing I'm most confident in uh, when it comes to him is his ability to get the quarterbacks from top to bottom on the depth chart prepared to play. Kind of diving into the Texans schedule real quick. Uh, obviously, open up with the Bears. They have the Chiefs at Week 2, which is a, a pretty important game. You don't want to lose to them three straight times at home. Uh, but then you go at New England for your first road game, and uh, Tom Brady is obviously suspended. Uh, Garoppolo is going to get that start. Uh, then you go to a, kind of an upstart Titans team, and then the Vikings uh, without Bridgewater. How manageable is that stretch of five games with uh, two of the starting quarterbacks being out? Yeah, it's a lot more manageable than it was before Tom Brady's suspension got put back into place. Um, and no Justin Houston for, uh, for Kansas City um, in, in week two. I think that Kansas City game, to me, guys, is just – that's a monster game. And, and not just because they lost to him twice at home last year, but it, let's, let's, you know, let's assume 
that we're allowed to do this. Bill O'Brien can't, but we can. Let's assume that they beat the Chicago Bears in week one, and they should. They're favored by almost a touchdown. Um, you know, just think about the two, the two directions the season can go that early in the season from week two. You beat Kansas City, you kind of exercise that demon, you get a little bit of confidence. That's a pretty good football team you just beat. I mean, I think they could win the AFC West. And you're 2-0 and heading, to, heading to play New England with no Tom Brady. If you lose to the Chiefs, it's okay. Well, we can all, you know, they're they're back in that mode where they're beating bad teams but losing to good teams. You lost to the same team three times in a row at home with Alex Smith as the quarterback, not a real world beater. And you're going to New England, kind of limping into New England a little bit. And I think the other thing with Kansas City is that that could be a team that come the end of the year, you know, you're that head-to-head win or loss could be the difference between you know, a home field advantage in a, you know, in a playoff game or, a, you know, a wild card spot or something. It's an AFC game, so it's just more important. I think that's a really, really uh, – that, that's a huge game early in the season. I think it's very manageable, um, especially with, with Bridgewater going down. That Minnesota game becomes uh, a, much more, a much more winnable game. Tennessee's upstart, but I think it's a home game against Tennessee. They should still be able to win that game. I've got him go. I had him going three and two when Bridgewater was still healthy. I've got him going four and one through that stretch. I do think they exercised the Kansas City demon in week two. Well, that would certainly be good news for all of us. Uh, so you uh, you looked at the uh, rookies, the Houston Texans, uh, you know, history of rookies in, the, in your Houston Press article, and you actually rate uh, Stephen Sla- Steve Slayton in the top ten or number one of your top ten. So I'm curious, we look at the rookie class coming in. Is there a guy there that you think could crack that top ten list and uh, make a really big contribution this season? Yeah, well, I, yeah, I think I absolutely think Will Fuller could crack the top ten. Look, DeAndre Hopkins was tenth on my list, and. You know, he he had 50 catches for 800 yards and two touchdowns. You know, I think if Will Fuller only has two touchdowns this year, I think that the year is a massive disappointment for him. Um, so I think, I, you know, I, I think Fuller could absolutely crack the list. The, the, Osweiler seems to be building something with Braxton Miller in that slot, too. I'm not saying we could get two guys on that list, but the class – I have said this. I do think this will be the most productive rookie class for this team and this is even including Nick Martin going down for the season. I felt this way even after Nick Martin got injured, is that I think this could be the most productive rookie class for this team since the 2011 class that had Brooks Reed, who was pretty good as a rookie, if you remember. He had more sacks than J.J. Watt. J.J. Uh, Watt was in that rookie class, and then uh, T.J. Yates uh, obviously led them to their first playoff win as a rookie. So I, I, think, I, I think Fuller's your best bet as far as working his way onto that list. I think the ceiling for Fuller on that list is probably somewhere around fourth or fifth. For those who didn't see the piece, um, it was a piece on the top ten rookie seasons by a Houston Texan. Steve Slayton's 2008 season was one. And then two and three were Brian Cushing and D'Amico Ryans, who were both rookies of the year on the defensive side of the ball. So I don't know that Fuller is going to have a good enough season to be a, an offensive rookie of the year. But I do think he can eclipse Andre Johnson you know Andre Johnson had 900 and something yards and 60 catches he was sixth on my list Um, Mm -hmm. so I think Fuller can have a bigger impact and and obviously a bigger impact on a much better team than Andre was on in 2003 so I'm excited about this rookie class you know it's, it's they've done a really good job the Texans have of getting fast quickly like it, it it'll be really if they if if this offense is explosive as it's looked at times in the preseason and as it looks on paper you know they're going to make getting fast look very very easy uh between those two guys obviously signing Lamar Miller Tyler Irvin in the draft 
as well. Um, so it's it's an intriguing rookie. Even the two fifth rounders, DJ Reader and KJ Dillon, have done some good things in the preseason. So I'm I'm enthused by the rookie class. So there's a lot of speed in the rookie class, a lot of speed at the skill positions, but ultimately it comes down to whether or not the offensive line can protect Brock Osweiler. And there have been a ton of injuries on the offensive line in the preseason. Uh, Dwayne Brown still recovering from last year's injury. How much of a concern is there that Osweiler is actually going to be able to be protected? Yeah, it's it's the biggest the offensive line is the biggest concern. Now, I'll say this. I do think – I do trust O'Brien to be able to game plan around it a little bit. You know, if we're comparing it to – if we compare the O'Brien offense to what New England does, and I, that seems to be the tendency, even though they're not exactly the same. You know, there have been times where New England has not had a very good offensive line. Now they have Tom Brady, at quarterback. I get that. But there have been times just from purely a game-planning standpoint where New England hasn't had a great offensive line. They haven't had, great, had a great running game but they're able to use the short passing game to, to kind of, um, you know, avoid having to have their quarterback sitting back there taking hits. So I think O'Brien will be able to game plan around it a little bit. The bigger issue is running the football, I think, with the offensive line. Um, you know, the, the, the downgrade from Nick Martin to Greg Mance, we really don't know what it is. You know, <laughs> Nick Martin never got on the field. Right. Um, we just know he was a second-round pick. And Mance has been okay, you know, and, and okay may be good enough at center. Um, my biggest concern is on the left side of the line, obviously, you know, assuming Derek Newton comes back healthy at right tackle, I think Jeff Allen will be fine at right guard. Xavier Suofilo still hasn't progressed to where you'd expect the 33rd pick in the draft to be in year three. And then we don't know what Dwayne Brown's going to be when he gets back. You know, all we do is we see him at practice, you know, sweating his ass off because he just got out of the gym working out to rehab that quad, but you know, rehabbing the quad to just be able to walk around at practice and then trying to keep, uh, you know, trying to keep bull rushers on the outside from getting to your quarterback are two totally different things. So it's the biggest concern. I'm more concerned about the running game than I am the passing game because um, I also think they've got weapons in the passing game where if they do, they can do some quick hit stuff that they've got guys who, especially in Fuller and Miller, who if you, you know, in certain play calls, if they can make the first guy miss, they can get a lot of yards after the catch that will make up for, you know, kind of, kind of really be a masking agent for a lot of flaws that they may have on certain plays offensively. You know what I mean? Like they, they, may, they may run three or four bad plays at some point during a series, but you got guys that, that can get you 25 or 30 yards just through their own kind of superhero powers to kind of make up for some bad plays earlier. So um, that's where having weapons like that comes in really, really handy. Now, kind of diving into the schedule one more time, the Texans have a loaded road schedule. They, you know, go to go to New England on September 22nd, uh, the Mexico City game November 21st, and then at Green Bay and Lambeau Field December 4th. If you're a Texans fan and you have to choose one road game to go to, what do you choose and why? Yeah, this is a good one. This uh, this is actually going to be. I'm doing a long form kind of piece on this for the Houston Press. Not long form, but uh, but like a pretty extensive piece on this for the press next week about kind of ranking all the road trips. Um, but my uh, and I did this on Twitter already too. Um, and I say this having gone to, I you know the, I I look at when I'm looking at these road trips, I go okay, well Jacksonville, Indy, and Tennessee you can go to any year. Although Tennessee is on New Year's, so that would be kind of fun. But of the other five, these, this may be the best year ever for road trips for a Texan fan. Um, they, 
the, like you said, at Green Bay, at Minnesota, in no particular order, at Green Bay, at Minnesota, at New England, at Denver, and at Oakland, and, and three of those are on are primetime games. You know, there's two Monday night games in there. One of them's in Mexico City. Uh, the New England game's a Thursday night game early in the year. Um, but I, if I had to pick any of the games of all of those, I would pick Green Bay in December. Um, you know, these NFC teams, the Texans only play, you know, they only play at Green Bay once every eight years. I was there the, the, the only other time they played Green Bay in 2008, and it was the same weekend on the schedule that this one is. It was the first weekend in December, if you guys remember. The Texans actually went up there and beat Green Bay. That was in Aaron Rodgers' first year as a starter. Uh, it was like the one year they weren't very good with Aaron Rodgers as their quarterback. Um, I would pick the Green Bay game um, almost because if you're going to Lambeau Field, you kind of have to go in December because it's the frozen tundra, man. If you're going to the frozen tundra, you've got to go when it's frozen. So uh, that, would be, that would be my number one. But they're all great. You know, those five non-division road trips are all awesome. Oakland and Mexico City and New England in prime time and, you know, the return of Brock Osweiler to Denver to take on Kubiak on a Monday night. And even Minnesota, although the Minnesota game lost a little juice, I guess, with no Bridgewater. But if you're going to Minnesota, you're going to check out that new stadium. And that's still there, obviously. So they're all great trips. It's a really, really good year for road trips if you're a Texan fan. Yeah, definitely a lot of excitement surrounding the Texans this season, especially with that schedule. I think my dad and I are actually going to try to go up to uh, Lambeau on December 4th. But uh, with all the excitement around the franchise this year in year three of Bill O'Brien, what is the ceiling for this team? Uh, I, I would say, well, first of all, if you're going to go to Lambeau, just real quick, you, there, I forget the name of the place, but you can probably get these. You can probably get it almost anywhere in Green Bay. They're not afraid to take a sausage patty and put it on a hamburger, literally a hamburger <laughs> with a sausage patty on it. So you got to seek that out. I forget what the sports bar was that had those, and obviously get the cheese curds as well. Um, I, the overall feeling around the Texans in year three of O'Brien, it's got to be huge optimism. You know, I, I like I, it's uh, it's interesting because I think I think this team's going to go ten and six. And if we remember the last time this team went ten and six, they it was two thousand eleven which then led into 12 and 4 in 2012 and I think everybody thought, well, look at this, you know, like two division championships in a row and then um, you know, this this thing's going to be good for a long long time and then we know what happened. It all imploded and a lot of that had to do with the quarterback position. If the Texans go 10 and 6, it will have mean that Brock Osweiler will will have played some pretty good football for them this year. And I think that the team is doing things just not not just from a quarterback standpoint, because I do think Brock Osweiler has a much higher upside than Matt Schaub had. That goes without saying. But I think this team has gotten a lot smarter in terms of how they put a roster together. I think they've gotten better at drafting these last couple of years. You know, even not just this rookie class. You know, even look at last year's with Kevin Johnson and Bernardrick McKinney and Jalen Strong looks like he's turning into a bit of a player. Christian Covington. Um, so I, I think this team's gotten better at talent evaluation. I think they've gotten better at understanding the value of contracts, which if you remember that 2012 team had a lot of really bloated contracts. You know, they did a lot of weird things contractually. So um, not weird things, but, I mean, they went out and spent a ton of money. They had to because their defense was so bad in 2010. So um, they had to let some guys walk along the way. You know, they cut Eric Winston, and then Connor Barwin walked, and Glover Quinn, and then, you know, they brought in Ed Reed instead, and it just – they, they did a lot of things in personnel that kind of built that team on quicksand. You know, that team was built to win, in retrospect, that team was built to win a Super Bowl in 2012. 
Um, they just didn't know it until 2013. So I think this team's gotten better at understanding, you know, building your roster as this living, breathing organism that needs to live forever. Uh, and so I, I feel better. I feel a lot better about the future in year three of O'Brien than I did say in, you know, even coming off of, uh, you know, probably probably coming off of the first division championship with Kubiak. You know, like I, you just still didn't know if it was just like a one-time thing or, if, or if it was going to be a, a long-term thing. I, I, I just, and I'm just a bigger fan of O'Brien's management style, to be honest with you. I think mean, Kubiak mm-hmm. is overly loyal to people. <laughs> I think the fact that he's won a Super Bowl is completely messed with my mind and recalibrated <laughs> how I look at things because I just don't think he's a Super Bowl coach, but. Uh, you know, but it, it it goes to show you, you know, like it's if you kind of if you catch the right set of cards sitting at the table, you and you got you got some good players, you can you can win the whole thing. So I'm long answer to say that I'm I'm pretty excited about the direction the team's going. All right, well, Sean, I'm going to level with me here. I'm going to do some hard hitting journalism. Uh, do you guys at six ten? Do you have an anti U of H agenda? Because we've had you on, we've had Mike and Seth on, we've had Jeremy Branham on. I've always found you guys very willing to talk about U of H and very fair. W- what is going on between you guys and the Houston fans? Yeah, it's uh, actually you guys are making me late for the meeting where we get together and go through our anti U of H agenda. <laughs> um, we uh, we we get together and we. We practice. We we get together and we all twist our mustaches and we go. Okay, what can we do to, to to try and uh, bring the the anti U of H bring you know put our uh, put our anti U H thoughts at the forefront. No, I, I think it's I think it's th- that whole thing is pretty silly. Like that that <laughs> that the station has some sort of directive. Now, if there are hosts that may do things or say things that get under U of H people's skin more than other hosts. You know that's that's absolutely true. I think it's true at any station, honestly, about any team. There's no way if you had a station of everybody saying the same things, having the same opinions on things, that would be a pretty boring station. So, um, ESPN. I, uh, yeah, <laughs> I mean, kind of. You know, they, they there are yeah, there, I mean, there are entities that try and homogenize their their coverage or their opinion on things. I, I you know, we're not one of those. Um, I, look, I can only speak to my show, myself, and I know, um, you know, as you guys know, you know, Tom Herman's not on our show uh, anymore in the afternoons because of the piece that Garrett Heinrich wrote about nine places Tom Herman should look to coach if he if he leaves U of H. You know, I, I, there were probably some things in there that were, you know, in terms of the tweet that went out. Obviously, tagging Herman, I think, got to him. Uh, he tagged Herman in the tweet with the link to the article. Tom Herman's not a guy. You know, I think Tom Herman is a guy who the possession arrow is going to point, always point to if you're doing something like that, you're doing it against the U of H. You know, you're doing it. It's us against the world. Um, it, that mentality has gotten him pretty far so far in his one year with U of H. So I get it. Like, I understand it. I respect it. I don't know what the shelf life of it is. You know, like if you're going 13 and one, like pretty much anything works. Like I, he's a high strung dude. Like it, it would be, and I'm not saying I'm rooting for this, but I'm saying it would be fascinating to see how his MO would work if that team started out two and two. You know what I mean? Like if 
or if he had to endure a season where they went eight and four or seven and five, because make no mistake, you know, the lunatic fringe of that of, of U of H is expecting they're they're expecting to be in the playoff conversation. You know, that that's that's the expectation this year. So um the, it's it's a fascinating study and management style his is because it's it's very much a bunker mentality that I think works great where he is right now. I just don't know, like, long-term, and I think we can all, like, you know, I think we can all have the adult conversation that long-term, he's not going to be at U of H, I don't think. You know, I, I think even if they get to the Big 12, there's, there's the chance down the road that some team could blow him away with a $10 million a year offer if he's, if he's as good as we think he is as a coach. Um, so that, it, that's, that part is really interesting to me is, are, are the things that he's doing at U of H – would those work at other places, up to and including micromanaging his relationships with radio stations in town? You know, like the, it's a weird thing, but because, of, because we're in a pro city, you know, he can kind of dictate, like, no, I don't want to go on this show, or I don't want to go on that show, without, with very little backlash. I, I don't think anybody is like, I don't think anybody's standing behind our station, like cheering us on going, yeah, six town on your side. Like I think most people think Tom Herman's pretty freaking cool right now. And they, the, the, the ones who have an opinion on it, I think are like, Oh yeah, you know, stick it to them coach. There you go. When, when you're in a small college town, like not Houston, where you're in a town where your school is the, is the pro team and you're not 13 and one, can you get away with those same things? And I think that'll be, to me, I don't know the answer, but I think I kind of know the answer. I, like, I think I, my guess is it, it, it would matter a lot more than it does here. So that, that, to me, down the road will be a fascinating thing to see, is if his management style works in a, you know, like in a, in a small college town you know like in a tuscaloosa or a gainesville or a college station or you know quite honestly the types of towns that make up about 80 percent of the college football programs that would be looking to hire a tom herman kind of shutting out the media that seems like a donald trump move doesn't it well it's it's counterintuitive from this standpoint is our show has the biggest audience in, in in the town and we have for a long time so it's you know if your goal I, and I think that was probably a big part of his goal in coming on our show was to expose the program. I mean, I don't think I'm speaking out of turn by saying that. He's, one, he's the person, he openly uses the word sales. You know, he says that college football, a big part of it is sales. So, I, like, I don't think he was coming on our show to do me and Ted and Rich a favor. I think he was doing it for the benefit of his program. So just looking at this intuitively, he willingly – stopped doing something that was that he saw as beneficial to his program last year over uh ultimately the straw that broke the camel's back was over an article that was somebody's opinion that was when you look at it was a complimentary thing now the other two issues that he had were brian straw who's not with our station anymore did an article last year saying he was going to georgia it was totally wrong I get being angry about that. The whole thing with Nick and Lopez is just sort of a he said, she said thing about Kyle Allen. And that was, you know, Herman willingly went on their show, and, and that, that whole thing, we, we know how that ended. 
um, that just turned into a huge blow-up. So, which, you know, Herman contributed to as much as Lopez and Nick Wright did. So, you know, like it's – his hands are a little bit dirty in this stuff just in terms of engaging those guys on that show. But, you know, like that's – if he, you know, he doesn't want to come on anymore, then, then that's obviously his choice. Um, and we'll, you know, obviously we'll find other stuff to fill the segments. Our, it's not like our ratings shot through the roof when we had Tom Herman on. They didn't crater either, but, you know, a segment with Tom Herman was the same as most of the segments we do. So, you know, for us, it's no real skin off our back other than, and this is my own fault, like I've just spent way too many hours jousting with U of H people on Twitter over the last few days. <laughs> You know, it's interesting to me that there is so much jousting because in the in the piece you wrote most recently, the preview piece for the season, I thought you were very complimentary. I mean, you wrote uh, Herman's ability to simplify the complex, to boil down things to the basic tenets of love, trust, and commitment might be his greatest skill, which I think is an interesting concept, too. Uh, why is it, do you think, we don't hear more coaches speaking uh, maybe the language of love, if you will? Yeah, because it's not in their personality. I Like, I think Tom Herman's a genuine person. Like, I think that's who he is. I, I think it's... I think it's really hard to fake the things that Tom Herman, that are that are woven into the credo of Tom Herman, if you will. You know what I mean? Like I, those are, those are the. You know, he's a very emotional guy, and I think emotion is the hardest thing, is the hardest thing to fake, especially that kind of emotion. You know, like I, and I think kids are smart. You know, they can sniff that out if he's not being genuine. So, um, I, I think, uh, you know, quite honestly, I think a lot of coaches don't do that because it's not in their nature. They're not wired that way. And if they were to do it, it would probably come across as phony. So, you know, there's that's the beauty of the world that we live in is that there's a million different ways to skin a cat. And in the business world or in college football or whatever, um, you know, there's not just one management style that works. There's multiple management styles that work. This one works for Tom Herman. It works really, really, really well. He's a great football coach, and that was kind of the point of my piece, you know, is that he's, he's excellent at what he does. He's going to be – he will, in spite of his flaws, and we all have flaws, and I think his flaw is just – his flaw. it's weird because his flaw, I think, is kind of inextricably linked with what makes him great, so it's, I don't think it's curable. You know what I mean? Like his high-strungedness – could get him, you know, that, that could be his undoing at some point. At the University of Houston, it's made him 13-1. and one. So, um, you know, but that's just, that's his management style that works for him. Um, and, you know, that's, uh, that's good. You know, other guys, Nick Saban is a little more kind of regimented, quiet, delegator, things like that, you know. So different things work for, work for different people. A lot of excitement about uh, surrounding college football and NFL here in town. And uh, Sean, uh, you're going to be doing the post-game show for the Texans this season. And also, you're pretty active on social media. Uh, for our listeners that want to connect with you, whether it's on the radio or social media, what is the best way for them to find you? Best way to find me is, well, the first and foremost is between 2 and 6 p.m. on Sports Radio 610 Monday through Friday. That's the, uh, that's the glue that holds the whole thing together. Um, and as you mentioned, I do the, uh, I do the post-game show for the Texans throughout the season. Uh, when the season's not going on, I do a national show on CBS on Sunday nights from 5 to 9 p.m. Uh, that also runs on 610. Social media-wise, uh, Twitter is at Sean, S-E-A-N-T, Pendergast, T is in Thomas, Sean T. Pendergast on Twitter. Um, I've got a Facebook page uh, that you can go uh, like if you want to, and uh, and as you mentioned, I, I do a lot of writing for the Houston Press, 
uh, and especially this time of year, football. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not a hard guy to find. I'm pretty easy to find. Well, Sean, we definitely appreciate you uh, joining us on the Weekly Brew Podcast this week, and uh, best of luck with the Triple Threat uh, and Houston Press and uh, the Texans postgame this year. Yeah, anytime. I always enjoy it with you guys. Thanks. Closing time. This has been episode 59, I believe, I'm fairly certain, 59 of the Weekly Brew Podcast. Uh, and you just heard Sean Pendergast, and he spoke a little bit about the controversy between Sports Radio 610 and the U of H fans and the U of H coach and that whole situation, which in listening to it and doing the interview, I found to be very reasonable. Uh, I felt like I saw Sean's perspective. Um, I felt like you know he admitted some mistakes were made maybe on both sides, and it's not a pre-reasonable to me. But U of H fans are all over this radio station, accusing them of anti-U of H sentiment, hatred for their alma mater. Um, it's an interesting perspective, I think. And if you if you listen to that interview all the way through, and you had a reasonable negative response, we'd love to hear from you. So go to our Facebook. It's facebook.com slash weeklybrewcast. Uh, we just broke a 1,000 likes this week. Um, I feel like the bell of the ball. I've never felt more popular in my life. Uh, thanks, you guys, for making me so happy this week. Um, but go there, and you can certainly leave messages on our, I don't think they call it a wall anymore. It's a timeline or some sort of amorphous concept I don't understand anymore. But you can leave messages for us telling us how you feel. I know there's a lot of U of H fans that listen to the show. It's a big contingent of our listenership. I'm curious what you thought of that interview and what you thought of Sean's response to that whole um, brouhaha, if you want to call it that. So, uh, But uh, in any case, I thought it was a great episode. I love the Iron Wilson, a great Houston Texans beat writer for the Houston Chronicle. We always love having the Chronicle guys on. You can follow both those guys on Twitter. Uh, Aaron Wilson's is at Aaron Wilson underscore NFL. And Sean Pendergast is at Sean T. Pendergast. And he told us what the T stood for, and I'll be damned if I didn't forget. I'm going to go back and listen to the tape again, but uh, good to know a guy's middle name. Uh, in any case, great episode this week. Jeremy, thank you for joining me. Uh, I take it you enjoyed your week? Oh, I had a fantastic week. Uh, college football, of course, firing up here. So many crazy things happened yesterday. Um, but it, the Weekly Brew Podcast being the voice of Houston, this is your place for college football talk and analysis. I'm really excited for for the rest of the season, see how U of H does. Uh, you know, I don't have a, a dog in the fight between uh, the beef between U of H fans and 610, but uh, I hope it works out because uh, I like both of them. That's my feeling as well, is obviously U of H is uh, sort of my home away from home. I, I grew up there in a sense. I spent way too many years there, uh, nearly eight years, but, uh, but that's my fault, not anyone else's. The point is, I have affection for both of those organizations. Uh, there's several guys. We've had Mike and Seth from Sports Radio 610 on here as well. I find them to be very uh, charming and intelligent, reasonable people, and hopefully we can all get along. But if we can't all get along, reach out to us and tell us why, and we'll go through those, uh, and we will we'll consider all the viewpoints. But in any case, this has been another terrific episode of The Voice of Houston, the Weekly Brew Podcast, and we thank you for joining us. Go visit us on Twitter, uh, at Weekly Brewcast. Facebook is uh, facebook.com slash Weekly Brewcast. Basically, search The Weekly Brew or Weekly Brewcast, and you're going to come up with something that we've created and put out. We'd love to have you follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and all those other uh, platforms. We need as many followers as we can get, and we love to have them. It makes us feel very virile and powerful. So thanks, as always, for joining us, guys. Uh, for Jeremy Paxton, I'm Kevin Cook, and I will toss back to Austin Staten, our fearless leader who is enjoying the beaches of Rio. 
Kevin, Jeremy, you guys killed it today. Thank you so much for uh, taking over for the bulk of the show, uh, especially the intro and outro. While I've been in uh, Rio de Janeiro, it's kind of weird to uh, do a podcast in two different hemispheres. I know we've uh, podcasted before from uh, both Europe and the United States, but this is something a little bit different. But again, I'm in Rio de Janeiro for the uh, 2016 Paralympic Games uh, here in Brazil, and the opening ceremony kicks off on September 7th, and NBC is going to be airing 400 hours of coverage, so I highly recommend that you watch that if you get the chance. But if you're interested in actually following the games, you can uh, follow me on social media. Just search Austin Staten on Instagram. I'm going to be posting a lot of photos and video content there. You can also follow me on Twitter at Astaten. And of course, it wouldn't be a show without mentioning Kevin's Twitter handle. Go ahead and follow him at KMichaelCook. But uh, we had a great show today, and thanks for everyone for listening to episode 59 of the Weekly Brew Podcast. Special thanks to Aaron Wilson and Sean Pendergast for joining us on the podcast. But For my co-hosts this week, Kevin Cook and Jeremy Paxton, I'm Austin Staten. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to The Weekly Brew. 